0: Support for AHLA comes from Clearwater, the leading provider of enterprise cyber risk management and hipaa compliance software and services for healthcare organizations, including health systems, physician groups, and health IT companies. Our solutions include our proprietary software as a service-based platform, IRM Pro, which helps organizations manage cyber risk and HIPAA compliance across the enterprise, and advisory support from our deep team of information security experts. For more information, visit clearwatercompliance.com.
1: Welcome, everyone. It's a real pleasure to be here today. My name is Bob Shaput. I'm the founder and executive chairman of Clearwater Compliance. I'm delighted to uh, be joined by someone who's become a friend of mine over the last uh, several years, I think going back to 2011, Leon Rodriguez, who was formerly with uh, HHS as the OCR director, and uh, currently is a partner at Safe Arts Shaw. Shaw. Uh, our conversation today is going to be uh, centered around what we've described as the um, increasing cyber personal liability for directors and officers. Uh, Leanne, I want to say a good day. Thank you for joining me. And thank you again for writing your kind words to the uh, in the foreword of my book, Stop the Cyber Bleeding.
0: Great. Well, uh, it, Bob, it's it's great to be here. A real pleasure. Um, you know, your your book could not have been uh, more timely and and more important, and, and will 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 continue to be so for a long time, uh, as the healthcare industry uh, faces uh, greater and, and more diverse uh, cyber attacks from from all kinds of sources that I, that I know we're going to explore this afternoon, and, and that's going to continue to rise. Yeah. Well,
1: listen, um, many attorneys uh, probably know you, um, but but probably not a great deal. Can you tell us a little bit about your background?
0: Uh, sure. So I think, you know, you indicated and, and it's hard to believe I was thinking about this before the call started. You and I have known each other uh, now for just about exactly 10 years. Yeah. And uh, I started as director of the Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights back in 2011. My background before that was actually uh, predominantly as a healthcare fraud and abuse lawyer, both as a uh, prosecutor in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, and then later as a white collar defense attorney uh, in those cases. And uh, by the time I uh, became director of OCR, uh, fraud and abuse concepts were really in the DNA of anybody in and around the healthcare industry. Uh, the boards cared about it, uh, you know, C-suites care about it, of course, you know, the bar that was focused on healthcare issues, uh, that was really built into the DNA. Back in 2011, uh, that was just starting to become uh, a part, part of the DNA uh, in, in, in the world when, when we're talking about uh, HIPAA and, and healthcare privacy uh, generally. Uh, fast forward for about the uh, last four years, I've been a partner. I finally left the federal government. Uh, well, they sort of kicked me out, actually. Uh, and uh, a, a little historical reference there. And um, I uh, started as a partner at Cypher Shaw, and I'm actually now the uh, co-managing partner of the uh, Washington, D.C. office of uh, Cypher Shaw. Yeah. Well,
1: terrific, and uh, as we both alluded, our paths uh, first crossed in uh, HIPAA land as you were coming on board as OCR director. Um, Quickly, my background includes work in uh, privacy and security and technology as an educator, an executive, an entrepreneur. Uh, Had the great fortune to work for uh, some terrific companies, uh, GE, Johnson & Johnson, a great company in Nashville called Healthway. And then in Clearwater have had... um, a Terrific opportunity to work with some great teams serving uh, healthcare organizations, uh, working hard to address compliance and cyber risk management. And um, you might declare me ready for the Smithsonian. I've been doing this for um, about 40 years, I guess. So um, in any event, what we want to talk about today is the, the C-suite and board-led um transformation in my mind that's required to help us manage cybersecurity risks in healthcare and I'm over the course of the conversation uh for those in our audience thanks for listening in I'm going to ask Leon to specifically discuss some legal concepts that get to the matter of personal liability of healthcare executives and board members and and of course we'll discuss some uh, uh, best practices for the board and C suite to help mitigate those liabilities but first if I may um I want to set the stage a little bit. We've both alluded to a, about a 10-year span. I'll go back to a little bit further to 2010, uh, following <clears throat> the passage of the, uh, the stimulus bill. We're talking about another stimulus bill now. This one was ARA, which included the High Tech Act. Um, Along with the bundle of uh, carrots of $33 billion in incentive money came a bundle of sticks in the form of uh, increased enforcement around privacy and security. Um, Increased enforcement, stiffer penalties, wider net being cast over business associates. And I'll call that uh, the uh, era number one, uh, era of compliance. Fast forward the tape a little bit to 2015, I call that era two, the year of the mega breaches. Um, uh, a lot of the payers, uh, Anthem, uh, Primera, uh, Care First, Excellus I think in total that year, there were about 100, In th- I think the number is like 190 million records impermissibly disclosed, compromises of confidentiality. Nobody died. <laughs> That's an important point. Now we take a step uh, three years later, uh, fast forward to 2018, All of a sudden, we're implanting biomedical devices into our patients. We're attaching devices to them that are now connected to the internet. I call that uh, era number three, patient safety. There are now increasing concerns. And then finally, um, I don't want it to happen, but there will be uh, bad things that happen to our patients. Uh, There will be up to and including events that may include death. And I think coming from that might be medical malpractice lawsuits and perhaps some derivative lawsuits. So I know that's a mouthful, but uh, Leon, I'd love to have you comment on that characterization of the last 10 years. And, and are you seeing um, boards and, and the executives with whom you work uh, seeing the same person, it's seeing an emergence of personal liability here as well?
0: Yeah, no, 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 no question. I mean, I think, you know, during my years as, as OCR director, and I think you, you, you hit that right nail on the head as far as 2015 being this sort of pivot point or inflection point, um, back then my primary talking point to healthcare providers was don't be stupid uh, because the kinds, of, the kinds of breaches we were seeing back then and the things that were turning into enforcement cases were people making minute-to-minute bad decisions. Uh, an executive is out meeting, meeting a friend for a drink. They leave their laptop in a, in a car. Um, a uh, a health care provider is in a dispute with a patient and, and they go ahead and they start blabbing their information. That's generation one. Um, generation two is when we start having, you know, these really big breaches. And, and that's really, you know, that generation two continues really in many respects that phenomenon continues to, to this very day um, are, you know, you start seeing these really bad actors uh, get into the picture and the potential harm they can do is far broader than those, those dummy breaches we were talking about uh, back in, in, in 2011. So, so the need for oversight has grown, you know, to their credit, I think a lot of uh, organizations have, taken that seriously and their boards and C-suites have taken it seriously. Um, I think where the challenge becomes is what does that mean to take it seriously? What, what, what need to be their, their routines? Uh, not just responding, you know, not just running to the fire when it happens, but what's fire prevention here? Um, you know, what, what is really required of them ahead of time to either prevent breaches or at a minimum be as well prepared to respond to those breaches uh, as, as circumstances allow. Well,
1: I, um, a moment ago, I kind of emphasized when I talked about the year of the mega breaches, I emphasized the word conf, uh, uh, compromise of confidentiality. Um, I want to, in, in the scheme of things, what we're all about as we attempt to assure uh, privacy and security. It's all about confidentiality, integrity, and availability of this very sensitive information to which we've been entrusted. And um, uh, not only the information, but the data and the, and the devices and systems that operate on this data. So I want to pivot a little bit and talk about a scenario uh, that I actually opened the book with. Uh, and it goes like this. So uh, uh, envision uh, if you're outside counsel or inside counsel, your client organization. So, a patient visits an internist in your organization, and for whatever reason, the internist orders a, a regular CT scan be performed. There's a suspicion of, of something wrong with the patient, uh, with their lungs. And um, the, the patient reports to the radiology department at the appropriate time. But the night before, um, a hacker slipped into the radiology department and placed a so-called man-in-the-middle device on the networking of the CT scanners. The hacker, by way of placement of this device, is now unable to intercept CT scan images. And moreover, I, uh, go with me on this one, <laughs> hypothetically, is able to modify those CT scan images. So he then uses, he, he modifies this particular patient's image. He then uses his access to erase any evidence that he was there. And by the way, on the way out the door, he absconds with a lot of CT images of a lot of other patients. Radiology, radiologist then the following day receives the report of this particular person whose image was modified where the cancerous nodules were removed. The radiologist sees no evidence of any tumors or any issues. He forwards his report, his uh, analysis to the patient's internist. The physician calls the patient with good news. The CT scan shows no evidence of cancer. As a result, there's a misdiagnosis, no treatment, and a patient death. Now, three things have happened here. One, radiology department was hacked. And think about whether that can happen in your organization or not. I would suggest to you it can. Number two, CT scan images were modified. And they might say, wait a minute, how's somebody do that? Hold that thought. But number three, radiologists were fooled as they read this modified CT scan image. Whereas before I talked about the compromise of integrity, a uh, compromise of confidentiality. Now I'm talking about the compromise of integrity. That is. It has been modified and changed by an unauthorized individual. Now, some of you may be saying, wait a minute, this is a little bit crazy. Uh, but I would suggest to you it's not. All of the above was demonstrated in research performed in, at Ben-Gurion University in 2019, published in a scientific journal and presented at various forums. That, And by the way, subsequent to that, there have been numerous attacks on healthcare organizations that have gone beyond just compromising confidentiality. Now, who? that's a lot, that's a big scenario. So I don't know, Leon, how far-fetched do you see this in the world and in your clients with whom uh, you're working today?
0: So Bob, it's a, it's a really interesting week. Uh, I know that we shifted the schedule around from when we, you and I were gonna have this, but it coincidentally, this is a really interesting week for us to be having this conversation. Uh, one of the things that we've learned earlier this week was that there's growing suspicion uh, that these uh, microwave attacks that occurred in, in uh, mainly affected US personnel uh, in Cuba, that this maybe had been going on for for decades uh, before it was finally detected and, and the harm was unearthed and what have you, and military personnel, diplomatic personnel who were affected by that. Um, you hear something like that, and you ask yourself, and, and, and you sort of put it together with the scenario that you just uh, described. Uh, and you realize that there are all kinds of out, actors out there. They could be state actors, they could be, uh, uh, you know, otherwise politically motivated actors, they could be organized criminals, um, all of whom would have both the uh, motive uh, and the, and the, uh, the wherewithal uh, to execute an attack, uh, as you described, either for, for political objectives, financial objectives, uh, or, or, or for, pure, for pure mischief. So it's a really real uh, risk that you're talking about. And in fact, uh, cyber attackers have hundreds, if not thousands, of ways to gain access to and compromise an organization's devices, its networks, its protected health information. And when we say that, we're talking about potentially sitting inside those systems for a very long time before anybody detects uh, that there was an intrusion. Um, And so, you know, what could be the consequences of of a CT scan hack like the one you described? Uh, Well, patients' lives can be uh, at risk. Um, You could have uh, in fact, you, you have them all the time. Um, you know, uh, I've dealt with a bunch of them in my time as a, uh, in, in private practice. Ransomware attacks that disrupted them. Not, not, not necessarily the, the information might, be, might not be exfiltrated, but in that attack, uh, a, a provider's ability to deliver services is, is disrupted. An organization's finances and reputation can be at risk. Uh, needless to say, you have uh, potential violations of uh, HIPAA, and those can result in some pretty uh, brutal fines and uh, corrective actions, not to mention all of the sort of legal and remediation expenses that go with that. And and I think this is a bit of what we're going to focus on today. Um, all of that, in turn, uh, becomes the platform for pretty significant uh, civil liability, not just at the organizational level, uh, but potentially at the personal level for both um, officers uh, and directors, um, uh, different sorts of litigation, shareholder derivative, other kinds of litigation that is, is goes beyond the organizational level and in fact is going at those at those individuals.
1: So um, all of a sudden, that doesn't sound like an IT problem. <laughs> and- <No>. um, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, as, a, as a CIO over the years and a number of organizations, I found out if I hung up, hung around in a meeting long enough, everything would turn into an IT problem. But this is certainly not, this is, this is beyond the CIO and the CISO. And I'd like to explore um, with you if inadequate cyber risk management can lead to what, you know, I just mentioned a medical malpractice lawsuit, a derivative lawsuit uh, aimed at executives and board members. So, Uh if you're up for that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you you need to look at it. And you know, these are are there gonna be a lot of lawyers on the phone, so they're gonna they're gonna forgive me for repeating first year of law school for them. Um, but you know, there are there are really uh basic concepts of civil liability that come into play in these situations. You know, first there is just the general idea of uh, negligence. I mean, those are those are the kind of lawsuits, that you know slip and fall and car accidents and things like that. But these are much bigger scale of those things, um, where you have, um, you know, you have you have the basic thing. There's a legal duty. So you know, somebody who's on a board or on a uh, in, in the C-suite has a legal duty either to the shareholders of that organization. Uh, or to its uh, patients, uh, their guests, and, and, and all of that, you know, sort of creates that, that legal relationship between them. Uh, and once you have that duty, that duty can be what we call breached, it can be broken. Uh, and if that duty in turn causes an injury, now injury is a big concept here, I think we're maybe going to expand on this in a bit, but it's not just if the information was stolen. If the information was compromised in any way that makes it less than 100% available for the benefit and use, uh, for, for, for the benefit of the patient, that, it, that creates an injury. Or if it creates uh, other liabilities for the company, that creates an injury. Uh, and then finally, uh, there needs to be a relationship. There needs to be what we call causation uh, between that breach, that failure to comply with. With the duty and the injury that that resulted, um, but you know, again, that's that's just taking the concepts that we see in car accident cases every day and taking them to a much bigger and far scarier scale in a lot of ways. Yeah.
1: So um, it, it clearly, when you get and and you're the attorney, I am not. Um, when you get into discussion of standards of care in the clinical environment, certainly there are established um, standards of care. Um, many of them spelled out in the ECRI guidelines uh, trust when it comes to acceptable medical care. Do we have anything yet that we could call a cybersecurity or a cyber risk management standard of care?
0: Um, I, I think it's still evolving. Um, I mean, I think I know that, that you know. I think we're going to we're going to start talking about your book pretty soon. But I think you you've outlined a a series of activities uh, that are expected. I will say this, I think that there are um, regulatory standards that exist and regulatory expectations that are imposed on organizations that in turn uh, translate into expectations for healthcare providers and their, and their principles. Uh, so for example, um, the HIPAA regulations themselves, Um, both the privacy and security rules, uh, set out a a variety of uh, physical, uh, administrative and technological requirements that need to be observed in order to um, uh, protect the security and privacy of health information. Those then roll up to an obligation to the principles of company to ensure uh, that those standards are actually robustly, robustly implemented. Uh, So I think that's one, one place where we find the standard. And when we're talking about uh, both board members and C-suite executives, they are what's called um, uh, known as, you know, they're fiduciary. So they have the power uh, and obligation to act for, as I said before, the benefit of both the patients uh, and, and, and the shareholders. And there is a, a, a duty of care of what is uh, what is expected
1: of them. So um, I, I want to just circle back for a moment to the to this concept of uh, negligence. Um, you know, there has to be injury due to negligence, is what I heard you say. What then is required to just to probe into that a little bit further? What what is required to show negligence? Well, you,
0: you 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 need you need to um, show that, you know, generally here what you'll be talking about is a, a failure act. So, I mean, I think there, there are sort of the, the acts of commission and the act of omission.
1: Right.
0: So when, when we're talking in, in the context here and particularly what, you know, when you think about what the responsibilities are of a board and board members and the responsibilities of a, um, um executives of a company, um, really often we're going to talking about a failure to engage in a series of activities that would be expected of them in order to uh, prevent. So it's, it's the failure tap, And that's where that breach that we talked about, that's where that occurs. Um, and then if, if that failure to act, in fact, uh, played a role doesn't need to be the only thing that played a role, but if it played a role in, Making a company vulnerable to a breach of health information, um, then pretty much in every case, that right there will have established negligence. And the reason I say that right there is that in most of these cases, it'll be fairly easy to establish that there was an injury. So we, even 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 if that data was never Uh, exfiltrated. And even if that data was never um, held for ransom in some way, even even if none of those things happen, just the fact that you have the uncertainty and everything that uh, is involved in responding to the uncertainty of what happened to that information, that in and of itself is an injury uh, that could lead to pretty significant liability for the company. And of course, for its its directors and, and executives. There,
1: there have been some, I, I'll call them recent, but I may be taking a little bit of liberty by calling them recent uh, uh, litigation that's been brought against corporate executives and board members. Now these are, these are situations outside of healthcare and um, uh, there may be some conflict here. I mentioned these in the book and if you can't speak to them, that's fine, I understand. Totally, but there have been class action lawsuits. Shareholders of Target, uh, Yahoo, uh, Equifax filed lawsuits claiming that the board violated their fiduciary responsibilities. They they weren't paying attention. They weren't exercising that duty of care. Can you comment on any of these and 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 if and how similar cases may emerge in healthcare?
0: Well, I, I think I can comment generally. I I, uh, I, I that the I, I would I would be having to do conflict checks for for like a week. Um, I think to to get through all the different uh, you know situations that may, may have happened out there. So, but I mean, I think I think you know you've certainly pointed to uh, some prominent examples that are that are out there. Um, you know, I think part of what we need to to realize uh, here is the degree to which. Um, health information is a, a particularly juicy target for bad actors. Uh, and so I have a colleague who is, is more of a cyber lawyer than, than a HIPAA lawyer. Um, but you know, he has a slide he takes everywhere. And he says the, the most valuable information on the dark web is health information. So it's not your banking information. It's not your stock portfolio. It's actually your health information that commands the biggest money on the dark web. And and so that means that even though some of these monster breaches that we've been hearing about, uh, and and there are many, many more uh, than the ones you were talking about, these monster breaches that in turn roll over into significant civil liability uh, end up with, uh, directors and officers of companies, you know, CEOs of companies being dismissed, uh, are occurring outside of the healthcare industry. It's really a matter of time, uh, before, um, we're going to be, we're going to be hearing about these in, 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 the health industry. And at that point, we're going to be having, I think, a I think the, the damage that that's going to do in, in the health industry is going to be far greater, actually, uh, yeah. than in these other environments. I,
1: I, I think so. As a, not an attorney, as a practitioner in the privacy and security space, um, there have been cases. There was a case last September uh, in Germany, outside the U.S., in a uh, hospital in dus- Dusseldorf, Germany, where a patient presented themselves and they were diverted away because the hospital was under a ransomware attack. And it ended up the patient dying, and there was a lot of analysis and, and investigation done, and it wasn't directly attributed to their not getting care. But the notion of a ransomware attack locking down an environment, it happened subsequently to the that case, it happened that the uh, Uh, Universal Health Services, it happened at University of Vermont Health System, Uh, cancer patients were turned away, Uh, were were not able to receive chemotherapy on their scheduled time. Right now, as you and I are engaged in this conversation, there's a case on the West Coast, there's an attack of Scripps Health System on the West Coast, where patients are being turned away from treatments that they would otherwise get, or not able to access their portal to provide medical records to another specialist with whom they're supposed to have an important appointment. So I, I my observation is, it, it is, as you pointed out, a matter of time before um, we have a cyber-driven medical or hospital malpractice lawsuit. Um, I want to pivot a little bit. Now, so we talked about fiduciary responsibility and duty of care, general legal concepts. I want to turn to another legal standard, and, and it's in, within HIPAA, uh, the world you lived in for a long time. Um, HIPAA defines a number of terms, including reasonable diligence. So how how will judges, uh, whether they're in the court system or they're administrative law judges. How, what, what is this concept of reasonable diligence and what should the board and C-suite be thinking about vis-a-vis that term?
0: Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, you know, it, it, one of the interesting, uh, uh, the, 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 the terms here, the, the way they're used in HIPAA uh, are really used to define what the uh, potential penalty scale is within HIPAA. And, and so you have a, a, a continuum of potential penalties that parallels the same continuum you might see in a civil liability context. The words are a little bit different, um, but you, you go from um, a, a reasonable diligence standard, um, which really just talks about the, and, and that's sort of on the lower end of the HIPAA scale. Yeah. Um, it, it talks in terms of the, Um, obligation, we're talking about the duties that you have in in, in the civil liability context. It talks about just the discharge of the obligations that an organization has when we're talking about HIPAA uh, to to take care to um, uh, prevent against harm, such as uh, something like a cyber breach. Yeah. Um, as you go further up that scale, there, there is, uh, there is, I'm sorry, further down that scale, there's reasonable cause, uh, which means that at a minimum, you should have at least been aware of this uh, potential harm. And then there's willful neglect where you really, uh, you know, willfully failed to uh, take action to to prevent the harm we're talking about. Now, the interesting thing about these in the HIPAA context is they almost don't matter in terms of potential civil liability. Uh, I'm sorry. They almost don't matter in terms of potential HIPAA liability in the sense that those numbers roll up so fast the way the HIPAA penalty uh, scale works that um, you're going to get clobbered in in a HIPAA case with millions of dollars in in fines almost no matter what. Once once you're in, you're going to be out for a couple million dollars. And I I think that's going to work the same way in the civil liability context, in the shareholder derivative uh, context that we're talking about here, because these breaches are so large, so many patients are affected, that it's the same idea. Once you're in, it doesn't matter whether you were... You know, you were you were negligent, but didn't realize you were negligent. It doesn't matter whether you're up at the scale of willful, you know, willful negligence. It's almost not going to matter because the hit is going to be so brutal um, that that either either way, it's going to be a pretty, pretty punitive outcome, likely.
1: So as we bring together some of the concepts of fiduciary uh, uh, responsibility, fiduciary and duty of care on the one side, and HIPAA uh, concept of of reasonable diligence. So, what's the bottom line here for the C suite and the board?
0: Yeah, I you know from my perspective, and I've actually served uh, on a number of nonprofit boards for you know two 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 decades now. So, uh, I, mean, I certainly understand sort of the. You know what, 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 what a good functioning board is. Um, I think the one thing you can't, as as a board, do, or as a C suite, and I think we had talked before, you know, about the CIO and the CSO, and in the first thing you have, you can't do is just assume. All right, we hired a great CIO. We hired Bob Chaput. He's been doing it for a while, and uh, and we're good. You know, that's it. That we don't have to worry about it. And, and we don't, and, and so um, you have to establish uh, routines and mechanisms of oversight, both at the board level and at the C-suite level. It doesn't necessarily mean every day, um, but to assure yourselves that everything that is, you know, that that standard of care is being met by the organization that we've talked about before, and, and that all the Um, You know, we, you know, in in other conversations, we drill into concepts of risk assessment and risk management uh, that, that those steps, you have reasonable assurance that those kinds of steps are, are being taken and that the organization has the resources that it needs uh, in order to respond. The other little sort of twist I'll put on this is that it's not just, you know, part, part of us to do it ahead of time. And, and so I think those are routines, you know, whether it's every six months or every quarter or every year um, that, that routines need to be set up of being up to date on what's going on uh, with these issues. Um, but also if you do have a problem, if, if you have uh, a breach or even if you discover a problem in your safeguards that doesn't uh, amount to a, a breach, Then you need to make sure that your response uh, is a robust one that assesses the root causes of that issue that you've discovered and that um, uh, takes action uh, to respond to whatever those root causes are. uh, And then in the future, to have some routine of auditing and and, uh, um, review in order to. continue to prevent those, those potential problems um, and, and to detect them as quickly as possible.
1: So if, um, I, I think those are some great um, pointers and, and illustrations of some common best practices. Um, what, what else might you add to that? What are some best practices that you'd recommend for board members, C-suite executives to mitigate liabilities?
0: Well, I think it also, it's a, 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 structural issue. Um, you know, so on any, any board, you're going to have, um, a, a variety of, uh, abilities and, 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 and focuses. So I think part of it is a, is a board structure and composition issue. Um, and, and, I think this is already, you know, if you look at board recruiting these days, I think this is something that's, that's out there, which is, you know, focusing on, uh, uh privacy and security expertise as a, Criterion for board appointment, yeah. uh, I think, is is a is a key issue. Uh, but then you, you know, those sort of working committees of your board, um, they they need to, they, they the the responsibility within the board to focus on those issues needs to be uh, de- uh, delegated within the board to a committee uh, with with the right expertise to review uh, what the organization, uh, is doing with these issues. Similarly at the C-suite level, uh, certainly the CEO and any kind of COO, uh, needs to really be in tight touch, uh, with their, their CISO and, and their CIO so that they are assured, uh, again, not just that they have the right people there, but that, that the right people are doing what they need to do on a regular basis. And, you know, you and I talk in other contexts, for example, about the importance of risk assessment being constantly updated. That's something that a CEO and a CO really need to be on top of. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, I'm um, looking at the time and, and thinking of uh, some of the great uh, advice and uh, content that you've provided here today. Um, I guess what I'll do is I'll, I'll wrap up. <clears throat> say a few things and, and then ask you for any final thoughts that you may have. Um, so given, uh, given all the great advice that you've given up to this point in time, um, I would add that the executives and the board, um, you know, what's the old adage? Um, eyes open, nose in, but fingers out. <laughs> so uh, yeah. I, I think at the executive level, I would be recommending, and I do recommend, that they focus on three things. Number one, and this gets to the matter of risk management, identify and prioritize all of your organization's unique risk. And this is a call or a statement about if you've seen one hospital, you've seen one hospital. If you've seen one ambulatory surgery center, you've seen one. This is a call, point one, your, about your unique risk to Avoid going after some control checklist and thinking that you're going to find something a one size fits all. Number two, that once you identify your risk, you're going to have to decide on what basis certain ones are acceptable and others are not. And this is about setting your risk appetite. So debate, discuss, settle on your risk appetite, and determine what level of risk your organization is prepared to accept. And number three, once you have done your risk analysis, you've identified your unique risks, they're in a long list from your most serious to your least serious. You draw a line in the sand with your risk appetite. And the ones that are not acceptable, you have to manage those. And that includes either avoiding those risks, uh, don't use those risky laptops anymore, practical or impractical as that may be, mitigate the risk, you know, implement the darn encryption that you've not implemented so far uh, and or transfer the risk, you know, but do some of the aforementioned, but also work with your cyber liability insurance broker and then execute on that plan. So one, identify your risk Two, settle on your risk appetite. Number three, manage your risk and, and do this in the context and, and the alignment with your overall vision, mission, strategy, values, services of your organization um, that's the note on which I would end. Um, it's, we're seeing it evolve beyond um, good news. Uh, many organizations, you pointed out, are starting to act, not regard it as an IT problem, dealing with it as an enterprise risk management problem. We're seeing a lot of organizations incorporate this within their ESG programs, environmental, sustainability, governance programs, because it's becoming a social responsibility to in and out of healthcare, to take care of your customers, or in our case, your patient's information. So on that note, I'll, you know, hand it over to you, Leanne, to see if you have any final thoughts.
0: Great. Well, the, the one thought, uh, and, and I think you were you were too modest to have this thought, and you, you can't see what I've just put up on the screen because it's a podcast, but um, I think you should read Bob's book, um, uh, Stop the Cyber Bleeding, that really has Uh, a number of really concrete and affirmative recommendations in there uh, as to the things that you can do. Um, The other thing is leadership matters uh, in this space. I mean, I think we've talked in terms of very concrete activities to be expected of the board and the CEO and COO, um, but it's also a matter of setting an organizational wide tone uh, that privacy and security matter. Uh, that everybody, not just the CISO and the CIO, but everybody really at every part of the organization needs to hold up their end of the bargain uh, and, 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 and to follow the rules and to have policies that really set that tone. And, and so I think with that, um, you will be far better. You know, it doesn't mean you're going to prevent every bad thing that can happen, uh, but you'll prevent a lot of them that could happen, uh, and you'll be far better positioned if something goes wrong. Uh, and, and so I think that's probably, in the end, in terms of just even a, a, a set of values and an approach, that's the key thing is it's really important to set an enterprise-wide tone.
1: I, I think that's uh, <clears throat> very, very well said. So uh, thanks again, everyone, for listening in. Really appreciate the opportunity. And thanks, Leon. great to be with you again.
0: Thanks for inviting me on.